Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, where the steel beams supporting the skyline of America were forged. It was home to a little-known renaissance in the 1930s. Like the infrastructure of American cities, many of the great black artists, musicians, and athletes were sculpted here as well. It was here that a local gangster, a legendary and elusive journeyman pitcher, and a crusading journalist converged to pave the path for baseball's integration. They were the three kings of Smokedown. Welcome to DeLorean Nights, a podcast that travels back in time on a road trip across America. Join us as we explore unique destinations and navigate the amazing stories, people, and events that came to define them. We could begin tonight's episode on a sandlot outside of Detroit, Depression era. A young man who had grown up dreaming of the big leagues was pitching in the biggest game of his promising young career. He was starting in a playoff game for the American Legion. He was 19 years old. Pro scouts had eyes all over this game, and he delivered. In a tense pitcher's duel, he threw a complete game shutout, and his squad won 1-0. After the game, the head scout of the Detroit Tigers made his rounds amongst the players. The opposing pitcher got an offer for the big leagues. The winning catcher got an offer. He then approached the winning pitcher. I'm sorry, I wish I could sign you too, kid, but I can't. Why couldn't he? Baseball was not yet integrated. The young pitcher cried himself to sleep that night. At the cusp of his prime, he got a harsh dose of Jim Crow America. We'll get back to this young man later in our story. Now let's fast forward to April 15, 1947, a very historic date in America. Brooklyn, New York. In front of 26,000 fans, another young athlete takes the field to make his major league debut. He's wearing number 42, and the journey to the top of his profession had been different than most. His name is Jackie Robinson. And on this historic day, the color barrier was broken forever in America's favorite pastime. It is often said that baseball reflects our country. As James Earl Jones tells Kevin Costner in Field of Dreams, the one constant through all these years, Ray, has been baseball. America has rolled by like an army of steamrollers. It's been erased like a blackboard, rebuilt and erased again. Baseball has marked the time. This field, this game, is a part of our past, Ray. It reminds us of all that once was good, and it could be again. Now another wall of Jim Crow and America's difficult past with race has come crashing down, with Jackie Robinson striking the final blow. In his own personal journey to the majors, Jackie finally crossed the finish line. But as a social movement, this wasn't an individual race. Jackie Robinson is only the anchor of a long and difficult relay. While he took the baton to the finish line that day in Brooklyn, there are a ton of people that got him there. Other runners in this race. Teammates, friends, 
compatriots, all having slugged through the muck and the mud, having fought through the worst that America could throw at them, having taken their licks and paid their dues through countless hours on the sandlots and bus routes, being told to get in the back of the line, not being served, being ushered to the other side of town. All of this was just to get the baton to Jackie Robinson. Some of them would have to sacrifice their primes, their careers, and even their lives to the altar of equality. And while this race culminates on Ebbets Field in Brooklyn, it makes stops through almost every city and town in America. It came north through Canada and as far south as Cuba and the Dominican Republic. While all of these cities had a key role to play, none may be more important than Smoketown. Smoketown is the nickname given to Black Pittsburgh. Yes, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. The Iron City, or Steel City, where American cities were forged in the steel mills. Like other northern cities, Pittsburgh was flooded with social refugees from the Great Migration. But unlike other places, Pittsburgh offered opportunities for the black community that was rarely seen in the entire country. Many schools were integrated. Gilded Age money flowed through the education system. Steel mill furnaces were firing on all cylinders. Jobs and education were there for the taking. And what was very unusual for this time period was they weren't out of reach for the black community as they were in many other cities. So people flocked to mixed neighborhoods of Shadyside, East Liberty, and Highland Park. However, it was the Hill District, or the Hill as it was known, that was the center of Smoketown. It was here that an explosion of talent, from athletics to music to art, erupted. It was here that the idea of Jackie Robinson was allowed to incubate. It was through Smoketown that Jackie Robinson's baton, or torch if we're going to change metaphors, would be carried. Though Jackie didn't know some of these people, they were his teammates. Jackie didn't come from Smoketown, but Smoketown was part of Jackie. In tonight's episode, we're going to focus on three of these heroes. I'll introduce each of them at an important time in their life. I consider them the holy trinity of Smoketown baseball. First, we'll take a quick pit stop to 1918 Pittsburgh. A former steel worker turned cab driver named Gus Greenlee enlists in the Army when his country enters the Great World War. He trains in Fort Dix, New Jersey, and ships out of Hoboken to France. As the German planes buzz overhead, his infantry, the famed Buffalo Soldiers, are showered not with bombs, but with pamphlets. The pamphlets ask why the famed Buffalo Soldiers would fight the Germans. Their own country are the ones that treat them as second-class citizens. Come to Germany, you'll be treated with respect, the pamphlets say. Greenlee and his fellow soldiers ignore this offer, as they are through and through Americans. They add to their lore, fighting bravely and proving their valor over and over again. Greenlee would soon get hit with shrapnel in the grand offensive to push the Germans out of France. He returns home to Pittsburgh in 1919. Though his official service was over, his battle and his legend were only beginning. This is Gus Greenlee. As it would happen, national politics of 1919 would offer a grand opportunity for a taxicab driver. The Wartime Prohibition Act was implemented, laying the groundwork for a dry America. 
The era of prohibition was on the horizon, and Gus Greenlee became Gasoline Gus, renowned bootlegger and rum runner for the Tito brothers and their brewery in southeast Pittsburgh. Greenlee carried an imposing figure at six foot four, which no doubt helped him as he dove into the underworld. Rumors began to swirl around him that he would raid liquor trucks of the toughest and most notorious mobsters of the day, heavyweights like Lucky Luciano and Al Capone. However, in reality, what separated Gus Greenlee was not his physique, but his entrepreneurial talent. He soon opened a speakeasy, and as what typically happens at speakeasies from time to time, it was raided. And as what typically happens to black businesses on the fringes of legality, it was targeted by authorities, especially with persistent rumors of intermingling between white women and black men. Rather than beat the law, in this case anyway, Greenlee worked to legitimize his business and run a clean joint. Live jazz, a chandelier, anything to class up the place. By 1926, Greenlee was rumored to have brought the numbers racket to Pittsburgh. Now this is a common term you've certainly heard if you've ever seen an old gangster film or confidence artist flick. However, it's often a throwaway line and few people know how it used to operate. Running a numbers game, as it was also known, was an illegal lottery game, prevalent in working class and poor neighborhoods throughout the country. Also known as the policy game, where bettors would enter discreet policy shops to make their wagers. Its modern and most popular versions emerged from Chicago. The premise was simple. Pick three numbers, place your bet. The next morning, check the newspapers. Each day, the local racetrack would post their daily cash intake. If the last three digits on the day's take match your selected numbers, you win big. Sometimes the winning numbers were reflected by a stock report, but the premise remained the same. The odds would be set prior to payout. A winning number paid 600 to 1. You could bet as little as a penny, which made it the game of choice in the tough blue-collar neighborhood of the hill. As Mark Whitaker writes, quote, For the gamblers, the bets bought a long shot at a dream a day's worth of hope during a deepening depression. A hod carrier could bet a penny for a chance to win $6, a steel worker, a dime to make $60, a club man, a dollar to score 600 end quote. The chances of winning were actually 999 to one. So with a payout of 600 to one, the expected profit for a racketeer was enormous. To run a successful numbers game, you needed boots on the ground, that is runners trekking all over town to collect the bets. You need a storefront for the runners to bring the betting slips and the cash. In Greenlee's case, this was a local barbershop. You also needed the muscle, or at least the perception of muscle, to collect the debts, as the more profitable games allowed some players to continue on credit. Finally, you needed a bankroll, or the creativity to leverage your risk. Odds are a tricky thing, dealing on a day-to-day -day basis. 999 to 1 does not mean 0% chance to win. Winners had to be paid. We've all been to casinos and seen gamblers go on heaters, catching strings of aces or tossing hot dice. We've also seen the house be seemingly unnaturally cruel, responding to these runs with icy cold streaks. It never unfolds evenly. A numbers racketeer is finished if he can't settle up his debts to the winners. 
That's why the runners often laid off some of their risk on other bagmen and racketeers. They shared in profits and losses to prevent a catastrophic event. Greenlee's number game became the biggest one in town, and he operated it like a CEO. But despite his impeccable business sense, he and all other racketeers were blindsided by the events of August 5th. Many bettors lack imagination and just play the current date. Typically it doesn't hit. After all, there's a 999 to 1 chance. But on this day, the stars aligned for the desperate and downtrodden bettors, and the current date hit. What was a blessing for gamblers across Pittsburgh was a disaster for the house. A majority of racketeers left themselves too exposed and now faced a crisis. Many fled the city. Others tried to pay out the winners with only a fraction of the agreed-upon odds. Greenlee saw opportunity with this disaster. He leveraged all of his possessions to pay out the winners, remortgaging his home, selling his furniture, whatever it took, but somehow he came out whole. His competitors didn't. He had survived the onslaught, and now he had the run of the mill and quickly moved in on their territory. To celebrate his newfound status as the Carnegie of the Hill, he bought a nightclub and named it the Crawford Grill. Whitaker writes, quote, On the third floor, Greenlee created a private Crawford Club where he entertained personal guests with the finest liquor and counted his gambling spoils. Overnight, the grill became the hottest night spot on the hill, a place where blacks and white hipsters came to mingle over the club's famous daiquiris and where all the top entertainers who performed at the dance halls on the hill or the Stanley Theater headed after the concerts were over. End quote. Now let's slide back to the late 1920s on one of the sand lots in Alabama or Tennessee or some other backwoods town. As they weren't allowed to play in the majors or their farm clubs, African Americans throughout the country had done their best to form their own leagues and teams. It was difficult, as funding was scarce. They would dig up whatever bankroll they could, often passing hats around to the fans, and hit the road for barnstorming tours. Sometimes they would schedule exhibition matches with white teams. During one of these barnstorming tours, a young pitcher took the mound, and players and fans alike began to take notice. With a six-foot-four frame, an exaggerated windup featuring a high leg kick, the fresh-faced teenager was wheeling and dealing, pitching a scoreless game. However, as a result of an infield error, the opposition managed to get a run in. Visibly upset, the pitcher kicked the dirt and showed up his teammates. The crowd, noticing the poor sportsmanship the young pitcher was displaying, began to hostily boo him, and this only fueled his frustration. He proceeded to then intentionally walk the bases loaded. The fans were apoplectic. To top that off, he ordered his infielders to sit down right where they were, as they wouldn't be needed. I can't even imagine what the crowd did when they saw this. The pitcher then calmly mowed down the next three batters. The young man's name was Satchel Page, and his legend was just beginning to grow throughout the sandlots and barnstorming towns in the South. Satchel grew up in rural Alabama, and early on took to thievery to feed himself and his family. Eventually, Satchel was caught enough times that he was sent to reform school, but this turned out to be a blessing in disguise. It was here that he discovered his passion and talent for baseball. One of his teachers showed him the intricacies of throwing a fastball, and he soon honed his famous windup and perfected the mechanics of his pitches. 
He later joked that learning the fastball cost him a five-year sentence. Now he was molding himself into the stuff of legend. Not only was he a generational talent that threw pure fire, but he was a showman that put butts in the seats. He would use the stunt of making infielders sit down a regular thing. Sometimes he would have the outfielders head into the dugout before the game was over, confident he would strike out whoever came to challenge him. Throughout the 1920s and early 1930s, Satchel barnstormed around the country, playing for any team that would pay him. When the money wasn't plentiful, he would hustle around local bars or whatever town he happened to be passing through. He often lightened the pockets of some poor local suckers by betting that he could hit 10 beer cans in a row from a distance. This hustle would often give him enough dough for a solid night on the town. While it was constant chaos, Satchel moved even more than the normal player. He jumped teams if someone offered him more money. Teams would go bankrupt in the middle of the season, and he'd have to pack his bags and find another. Some of his teams, desperate for money, would rent him out to other teams so that they could draw their own crowds. The Negro Leagues were in their infancy to begin with, and the setup and schedule was all over the place. Compile that with the worsening depression, many teams and alliances of leagues would have to fold mid-season. Biographer Mark Rabowski, in his great book about Page called Don't Look Back, wrote, quote, Back when baseball was run like a plantation, Babe Ruth owned the mansion and Satchel Page the back 40. Stuck in the dark orchard of beggarman's baseball, atop mounds of the Negro Leagues, in the Caribbean, in Mexico, barnstorming from Manitoba to Mazelton, from Alaska to Argentina, anywhere that nine men would engage nine men for profit, if not fun, Leroy Page may well have been the greatest pitcher to ever caress the seams of a hardball. End quote. The zigzagging journey would eventually lead him to Pittsburgh, and the gravitational pull of Gus Greenlee was too strong, even for the elusive Satchel Page. Kicking back at his Crawford grill, the numbers king of Pittsburgh, or the king of the hill, pondered his next move. The Crawford had become a crown jewel of the vibrant nightlife scene of the hill, and a beacon of the black community. Rybowski writes, quote, Nearly everyone who was anyone in town would come see Gus, his three-story Crawford Grill, truly the Café Americaine of Pittsburgh, an oasis of amorality in the neutral zone between black and white hustling. They would come to hear Duke Ellington, lay bets, pay homage to Big Gus, get snockered, and forget all about what sunrise meant outside on the hill. End quote. To keep the action going and business thriving, as he had grown accustomed to, Greenlee had to bribe the right people. Police were given free bets, and their palms were kept greased. As not to arouse any suspicion of corruption, raids were staged at the Crawford, yet somehow Greenlee managed to always come out unscathed when the heat was on him. But this constant give and take with the authority could be a precocious and dangerous game as the political winds could change at any moment. That is, unless you had City Hall in your corner. So Greenlee courted politicians, who were more than willing to listen. While the money he had was important to them, he could also offer them something even more important, votes. The Hill would vote on Greenlee's recommendations, and that type of power could swing elections. 
Greenlee had a powerful ability to turn the tide of public opinion through his effort in the community. Greenlee basked in his role as a local hero to a community in need. During the Depression, banks stopped giving loans to Hill residents. Greenlee became the top lender in the neighborhood. He would cover rent, offer jobs, and leave food and other essentials on the doorsteps of his neighbors. Rabowski would say that Gus, quote, never turned his back on the good people of the Hill. If they were in debt to him, he had a moral debt to them, end quote. So what was left for the man at the top of the hill? Naturally, by a sports team. The kid brother of one of his partners was one of the best athletes on the hill. He had patched together a tough and formidable group of Sandlot players in the area. Weirdly enough, the team's name sound destined for Gus. They were called the Pittsburgh Crawfords, or Craws as their fan base referred to them. Like most other Sandlot clubs, they were in dire financial straits. And as he was known to be for his neighbors, Greenlee was there when they needed help. He made a deal to purchase the club. With more and more teams falling victim to the Depression, Greenlee saw this as an opportunity to pounce, much like he did with the competition when they were reeling from the 803 catastrophe. He poached the best talent from the cash-strapped teams around the area. Now, of course, there were alternative theories behind Greenlee's motives, beyond desire to help his community and his love of sports. Money laundering was an obvious hypothesis. All of these may certainly have been a factor, but another likely motivation would soon emerge. In the Craws, Greenlee could now find a worthy adversary and a rival. This came in the form of local powerhouse the Homestead Greys and their owner, legacy child Cumberland Posey. Posey's Homestead Greys boasted the most impressive roster in perhaps all of baseball, black and white. The talent was stocked by Posey, who had a relentless drive to improve his team. The roster was riddled with stars and legends of the game. Smokey Joe Williams, the half-Comanche fireball thrower. Martin DeHigo, the Cuban with the heavy stick. Scowling Oscar Charleston, a man as renowned for his hitting as he was for his fighting. But the headliner of this star-studded lineup was Josh Gibson. Gibson was perhaps the greatest hitter to ever live. People said his nickname of the Black Babe Ruth was insulting. Babe Ruth should have been nicknamed the White Josh Gibson. Gibson's powerful frame was notorious, forged in the steel mills where he worked with his father. He was once rumored to have hit the ball out of Yankee Stadium. In 1931, many swear that Gibson smashed an unfathomable 72 home runs. Record-keeping was expectedly erratic during this time period, so no one knows for sure. Greenlee looked upon Posey and his homestead grays with envy. He was determined to take him down and claim his throne. He set about poaching all of the talent he could get his hands on, often wooing them at the Crawford Grill. He even went after players from the Greys right under Posey's nose. He told one recruit that he was going to assemble the greatest black team in history, and he did just that. Soon, Josh Gibson had crossed the Mason-Dixon line and wore a Crawls uniform. He successfully recruited Cool Papa Bell, the fastest man in the game. He was so fast, a teammate once claimed he turned off the lights in the hotel room and was under the covers before it got dark. 
But the prize haul of this entire roster was none other than the best pitcher in baseball. The Craws coveted Satchel Page and Greenlee rolled out the red carpet upon his arrival. Greenlee and Page were fast friends. Greenlee loved to offer him money and Page loved to spend it. On top of the generous contracts, Page would come by the Crawford Grill and ask Greenlee for some extra dough to bring a girl on a date. Greenlee did him one better and sent him to buy a few suits so that he could be appropriately dressed for his date. Page could spend money as fast as he could throw darts past unwitting opponents. This didn't bother Greenlee at all though, since the crawls were a hit and Page was their top attraction. They steamrolled through their competition, destroying the newly created Negro League and whipping up on any team willing to play them on an exhibition match during their barnstorming tours. They took down the Homestead Grays with Page at the helm pitching a masterpiece. Sometimes before a game, Greenlee put in his promotional material a promise that Page would strike out the first nine batters he faced, and Page often delivered. Greenlee even created an all-star game, dubbed the East-West Classic. This became the biggest game of the year and an annual tradition in the black community around the country. Greenlee also constructed a baseball stadium equipped with lighting right in the hill section of town. Greenlee Stadium would be the cathedral for black Pittsburgh. With the fastest runner, the hardest hitter, and the greatest pitcher in a Crawls uniform, Greenlee's team began a dynasty that reigned throughout the mid-1930s. They won everywhere they went, and they continually got the best of their hometown rivals, the Homestead Grays. The Crawls, especially Satchel, were the toast of the town. Page recalls walking down the streets of Pittsburgh to a king's greeting, shaking hands and receiving encouraging shouts everywhere he went. But dominance in any sport never lasts and especially not in the Wild West world of Depression-era baseball. By 1938, Satchel had come to the Crawford Grill a few too many times with his hands open for more petty cash, and his relationship with Greenlee soured. He was soon poached by another team, as Satchel Page had a tendency to do. Greenlee had also delved into other sports investments that hadn't quite panned out. The political winds had changed directions as well. With a newly formed Democratic town hall in place, curbing gambling was high on the agenda. Also, another big number hit, putting further strain on Greenlee's resources. To top it all off, the country couldn't seem to get themselves out of the depression, and the slide continued. Attendance at Greenlee Stadium eventually plummeted, and the resources to keep up renovation had run dry this damn depression would not release its vice grip on the country. But as in sports, capitalism, and life in general, as Greenlee's star faded, another would rise in his place. Cumberland Posey, his greatest rival and nemesis, pounced on the opportunity, and the Homestead Grays returned to their glorious past. But as he enjoyed the mountaintop once again, he used his position to push for integration rather than further asserting his power in the ranks of the Negro Leagues. He got into the ear of Pittsburgh Pirates owner, who also spoke out in favor of it. Now none of the exploits of Gus Greenlee or any of his craws would have had the impact they did on black America or all of America without a proper mouthpiece. A story can't become a legend without the storyteller to witness and report it. Luckily, Smoketown had the Pittsburgh Courier 
the preeminent black newspaper of the nation. Hallowed journalists and the best in their craft put their hands to the typewriter for the Pittsburgh Courier. They were the voice of black America and gave a narrative to the struggle for equality. They covered the sports legends, the classic musicians. They held the double V campaign during World War II, victory abroad and justice at home. They would also lead the charge to integrate baseball, championed by the talented journalist Wendell Smith. While that may sound like a new name in this story, we spoke about him at the very beginning of this episode. Remember the young pitcher that dominated the American Legion game only to have his heart broken when the pro scout apologized for not being able to sign him? That was Wendell Smith. After that day, Smith says, quote, it was then that I made a vow that I would dedicate myself and do something on behalf of Negro ballplayers, end quote. Wendell became a journalist, and after taking a low-paying job at the Pittsburgh Courier, he worked his way up to sports editor. His weekly column was widely read and a strong driver of sales. He started to use this column to gain steam on the plight of integration in baseball. The Courier, the Double V campaign, and the heroic efforts of black Americans in the war started to make traction. In 1943, the commissioner of baseball, feeling the heat, was forced to finally make a statement regarding integration. He stated that there was no rule preventing any of the owners from employing anyone they wanted. It was up to their own discretion. While he was merely passing the buck, it did create a crack in the wall, one the courier journalists, especially Wendell Smith, would focus on. Always with his finger on the pulse of baseball, Smith had followed the rise of a young Jackie Robinson in California. While there were a plethora of players with the talent to star in the majors, Smith was looking for the player with the correct temperament to handle the onslaught and outlash of racism, torment, and press that would come with the job. Whitaker writes, quote, Like Wendell, Jackie Robinson was accustomed to being around white people, having attended UCLA and served in the Army. He knew the value of hard work, the son of a woman who had supported five children on a domestic's wages after a husband had abandoned the family. He could also stand up for himself, as he had in the army when a driver ordered him to the back of the military bus. Jackie refused and was court-martialed for insubordination, but he managed to win an acquittal and an honorable discharge. Just as impressive to Smith, Robinson had a winning smile and a thoughtful, earnest manner that masked his fierce drive and prickly pride, and that would go over well with white fans and baseball executives. Smith was well-respected in baseball circles, and he began giving his pitch to owners about Robinson. The owner of the Brooklyn Dodgers was listening. He brokered some meetings and eventually a tryout. Robinson was given a minor league contract. And not only being the dealmaker and journalist, Smith was assigned the task of being on the front lines with Jackie Robinson as he navigated his career in the major leagues. He would accompany him everywhere he went, being there as a friend, ally, and companion. It wasn't easy, as the spring training locations, minor league assignments, and exhibition games often came through the worst parts of the Jim Crow South. Robinson was often forced to sleep in a different part of town than the rest of his teammates. More than once, and understandably, Robinson's frustration flared, and more than once, he thought of quitting. But Smith was there by his side. The Courier, Smoketown, and the entire readership were there by his side. They would help get Jackie to that finish line. 
April 15, 1947. While the integration of baseball was a paramount victory in the civil rights movement, it was a bit bittersweet for some people on the Hill. Wendell Smith among them knew that integration of the major leagues spelled doom for the beloved Negro Leagues, but this was a necessary sacrifice. Segregation was un-American and had to be eliminated. The Negro Leagues were not the only sacrifices. As always, the integration came too late for many of these Sandlot legends. In 1947, right before the color barrier was broken, the greatest hitter ever, Josh Gibson, succumbed to his demons and passed away at the age of 35. Whitaker writes, quote, Years of heavy drinking, drug abuse, and womanizing had taken a severe toll, end quote. After one particular bender that began at the Crawford Grill, Gibson passed out in a movie theater. Doctors took him home, and he died in the night. Wendell Smith wrote his obituary. Quote, Perhaps if Josh Gibson hadn't been the victim of the vicious color line in the majors, if he had been given the chance to make the big leagues, he so justifiably deserved. If he could swing his bat against the type of competition for which he was born, he might be alive today. For he was a big leaguer, and he knew it. He was a thoroughbred, and he should have been with them. But they slammed the door in his face, his kindly black face, and left him standing on the outer fringes of the glistening world in which he belonged. That treatment, more than anything else, sent the king to his grave. End quote. Wendell Smith continued the crusade for the rest of his life. He was at Jackie's first home game, and almost everyone after that. He could always be found at the park, perched in the stands with a typewriter in his lap. Ironically, or perhaps fittingly, the man who personally penned the story of baseball's integration was banned from the press box. As for Satchel Paige, the traveling man that pitched everywhere and for every team, he finally made it to the majors. He signed in 1948 as a 42-year-old rookie. He played until he was 47. While he was able to hang on at the twilight of his career, Gus Greenlee was not. He was out of baseball by the time Robinson approached the plate in 1947. His field was torn down and his fortune faded. He continued to operate the Crawford Grill until it burned down in 1951. He passed away from a stroke shortly after. He now rests at the historic Allegheny Cemetery just north of the hill, among congressmen, Civil War heroes, his prize player Josh Gibson, and other Pittsburgh royalty. So as Robinson rounded the bases that iconic day in 1947, the three kings of Smoketown were there in their own way, waving him on as he rounded third and headed home. Robinson dashes to the plate. It's close, and umpire Summers calls him safe on the daring maneuver. But Yogi Berra doesn't think so. And the fans will never forget the sight of Jackie Robinson preparing for the plate on his daring steal. Snyder drives him home with a single to right. The National League champions lead one to nothing. Special thanks to the production team of Van Vorst Films, who produce and edit this podcast. Our main source for this episode was a book by Mark Whitaker, Smoketown, the untold story of the other great black renaissance. The other major source of this episode is Satchel, the life and times of an American legend by Larry Tye. 
Make sure to check out the show notes for all the sources we used for the episode. Until next time, thank you for joining us tonight and hopefully we'll see you in the future.